The 1920s in rural Pennsylvania was a strange time. While the developed areas of the United States had already slipped into modernity, the people in the isolated backwoods of rural Pennsylvania were still known to seek understanding of the world by way of folk magic, especially the Pennsylvania Dutch. While city dwellers reaped the benefits of modern medicine, much of the Pennsylvania Dutch community wielded the traditional German health and healing systems that had been passed down from generation to generation. These traditions of ritual healing were known as powwow. Now, generally speaking, powwow magic was fairly innocuous. It combined an assortment of verbal invocations and prayers with ritualized objects and a dash of celestial and calendar observances, all to promote and protect one's well-being, both physically and spiritually. And for the most part, the modern world, while finding it all a little strange, had no major issues with the seemingly harmless Pennsylvania Dutch powwowers. But sometimes things got out of hand. Susan Mummy was a widow, and she also happened to dabble in Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic. Susan lived on a secluded farm near Ringtown, Pennsylvania with her adopted daughter and a man named Jacob Rice who stayed in a rented room on the property. Susan was not particularly well liked around town. Ever since the death of her husband, she had been extremely reclusive and when she was seen, it was rarely under positive circumstances. She had a tendency to start petty disputes with people, arguing about property lines and mortgages and anything else that struck her fancy. And one dispute that seemed to have a special place in her heart was with the residents of a neighboring farm over their property line. One day in 1927, the owners of the farm hired a new worker, a 17-year-old boy named Albert Shinsky. Albert was a perfectly normal, happy guy, just looking to work for some money. But one day while he was working the farm near the fence that bordered Susan Mummy's property, the fence that she claimed was on her property, he noticed the old woman approaching. At first, he didn't give her much thought, but as she got closer, he began to feel nervous and began to break out into a sweat. He paused his work for a moment and ventured a quick glance in her direction, only to see the woman standing at the edge of the fence, glaring straight at him. For a split second, the two locked eyes, and Albert was overcome with a tremendous sense of dread. The cold sweats grew stronger, and he began to undergo a strange sensation, almost like invisible hands were clutching his throat. From that moment on, Albert's life changed forever. It became impossible for him to eat. He had tremendous difficulty holding a job, and he was constantly haunted by a mysterious black cat with green eyes that he believed Susan Mummy had conjured for the sole purpose of tormenting him. Every night as he would try to sleep, the creature would ambush him from the shadows, scratching and clawing at him and leaving him unable to sleep and constantly exhausted. And sometimes, the creature's face would melt away, only to be replaced by the face of his tormentor, Susan Mummy. Albert came to believe that she had placed a hex on him that day by the fence. And this torment lasted 
for the next seven years, until finally Albert Shinsky could no longer bear the burden of the curse. He finally broke. And on March 17, 1934, he went to Susan Mummy's home, armed with a shotgun, and he shot her through the window, killing her immediately. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of Simply Strange, the big 2-3. Thank you for stopping by. I've got a really weird one for you today. This week, we're going to be talking about magic and witchcraft and hex doctors. Some really fascinating stuff. So buckle up. This is the story of John Blymeyer. It may come as a surprise to some that even until the early 1900s, folk magic was alive and well in certain parts of the United States. Tucked away in secluded rural areas among the farms, country roads, and mountains, there remained a small but vibrant community of practitioners of folk magic, especially among the Pennsylvania Dutch. One such person was John Blymeyer. John was born in 1895 in York County, Pennsylvania, a mostly rural part of the state, some 70 miles or so to the west of Philadelphia. John would grow to be a bit of an outcast. He was a sickly child, and he rarely left home, except to go to school, and when he did, the other children often made fun of him, and his teacher described him as slow. But born to a family of powwowers dating back many generations, John was exposed to the German ritual healing practices from a very young age, and while he did rather poorly in school, he did seem to have an affinity for folk magic. He quickly gained a reputation around York County as being an exceptional healer, and by the ripe old age of seven, his expertise became a highly sought-out commodity throughout the community. When John was 13, he dropped out of school and began working at a local cigar factory, where his income continued to be supplemented by his ongoing powwow healing. While he worked at the factory, his unusual abilities continued to be on display. One day, as he and an assortment of fellow workers left the factory for the day, the group of men noticed a dog heading in their direction. It was foaming at the mouth and limping along in an awkward, unnatural gait. It looked to be rabid. While most of the men simply stood their ground, prepared to fend off the wretched creature with force, 
John stepped forward. He stared intently at the creature as he approached it, muttering indecipherable words under his breath until the two were mere steps away from each other. And then the dog relaxed. Its tense, twisted stance straightened, and even its mouth ceased foaming. John patted the dog on the head, and the group of men continued on their way, now with the happy dog trotting alongside them, seemingly cured completely. Now, John seemed to have a knack for reaping the benefits of his powwow magic, and there was a lot of good that could be done. But as it turns out, the world of Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic goes beyond just the benevolent healing powers of powwow rituals, and on the opposite end of the spectrum lies hexerai, or witchcraft. As time went on, John began to lose his grasp on the powerful healing powers that lay within him, and instead he began to suffer from bad luck and illness that he believed was the result of a hex, placed on him by a practitioner of black magic. Over the months that followed, John Blymeyer continued to grapple with his lingering ailments and continuous bad luck. He often found himself unable to sleep or eat. He was losing weight and his powwow magic seemed to be slowly slipping away. John was wholly convinced that someone, some unseen enemy and practitioner of dark magic, had placed a hex on him. And he made several attempts to use his own charms to remove the hex but was ultimately unable to do so. And as a result of all of this, John was beginning to lose confidence in his ability to practice his powwow magic. He grew nervous, constantly alert, and startled by even the smallest sound. John's life was plunged into turmoil, yet he still could not locate the source of his curse. Until one night, it finally hit him. Late one night, John lay in bed, unsuccessfully attempting to get some sleep, a circumstance that was becoming a nightly routine given his current condition. As he lay, he pondered his situation, replaying moments in his head and trying to piece together just who had placed this curse upon him and why. And then his reflections were suddenly interrupted by the chiming of his clock as it struck midnight. Followed a moment later, by the sound of an owl outside. The owl hooted seven times, sparking a connection in his mind. John came to the conclusion that he had been hexed by the spirit of his great-grandfather, Jacob, who was buried nearby in the family cemetery. The man had been a seventh son of a seventh son and a powerful powwower. Why exactly his grandfather would have hexed him, John was not quite sure. But with the hex becoming too powerful for him to fend off, John decided that his only remaining option was to move out of his ancestral home, far away from the family cemetery and his great-grandfather's malicious spirit. So that's exactly what he did. And at first, it seemed to work. Immediately, John's condition began to improve drastically. He fended off his illness, and his powwow charms returned. He moved into a new home and fell in love with the daughter of his landlord, a woman named Lily, and soon the two got married. Unfortunately, however, the newlywed's happiness was doomed to be fleeting, and it all came crashing down shortly after the birth of their first child, when the child died in infancy. Now, while this was devastating for both parents, they managed to put on a brave face and push through, and soon Lily was pregnant with a second child 
Sadly though, it would seem that John's bad luck had returned with a vengeance, as this child was born prematurely and only lived for three days. And it was at this point, faced with the devastation of losing two children, that John snapped, relapsing back into his previous state of sickly, agitated fear. John once again came to believe that he was under the influence of a hex, and this time he would go to startling lengths to break the curse. On the surface, John's self-diagnosis that he was cursed may sound like a strange and unusual situation. It's easy to write off the man as being insane. And maybe he was. But as it turns out, the circumstances are not that simple. The forces of good and evil, powwow magic and hexerai, were common themes throughout the rural Pennsylvania Dutch communities of the time. And John was far from the only person in the county to grapple with such problems. The death of his two newborn children sent John into a vicious downward spiral, one that thrust him deeper and deeper into the world of powwow magic as he sought to break the curse that loomed over him. By 1920, he had consulted with over a dozen powwow doctors from all across the county and beyond in search of a solution. One such doctor was Andrew Linhart. From 1920 to 1923, John Blymeyer visited Linhart 20 times, and during those visits, John's already poisoned mind was further consumed by fear of dark magic, and it all came to a breaking point when Linhart told him a troubling story about a local York County woman who had recently faced an ailment much like his own. In 1922, another one of Andrew Linhart's clients, a woman by the name of Sally Jane Hagee, too suffered from what Linhart believed was a hex. Like John Blymeyer, this woman was facing bad luck, sickness, and terrible physical pain. Believing that she was cursed, Sally sought the aid of a professional and went to Linhart for help. And Linhart diagnosed her in a similar fashion to Andrew Blymeyer. He believed that she was, in fact, suffering from a hex. And in addition, he believed that someone very close to her was responsible for placing this hex upon her. He believed it to be her husband, Irving. So Linhart attempted to heal her, performing rituals and incantations to drive off the hex. But Sally did not believe that any of his attempts were successful. She continued to suffer from overwhelming physical pain, until finally one day she reached a breaking point. She shot her husband in his sleep killing him. However, even this did not break her curse, and a short while later, the hopeless woman committed suicide in prison. Now, after this happened, John Blymeyer caught wind of the story and came to believe that he too was under the influence of someone close to him, and as a result, his attention turned to his wife, Lily. However, Lily had also caught wind of this terrible story 
and she was determined to not undergo the same fate as Irving Hagee. She took swift action, having her husband committed to a mental institution, and while he was there, she filed for divorce, a request that was granted. But the apparent security of a mental institution would not be enough to quell John Blymeyer's troubled mind, nor to keep him safely away from society until he conquered his superstitions. As it turns out, the mental institution was not secure at all. And just 48 days after he was committed, John walked right out the front door and straight back to York County. With his wife and the mental institution out of the picture, John Blymeyer was left to his own devices. By 1928, he had returned to his old job at the cigar factory, and there, his mental state continued to disintegrate. John met a pair of men while working there, John Curry and Milton Hess, who were dealing with their own cases of supposed hexes. Curry, who was 14 years old, was living in an abusive home and believed that a malevolent force was the source of his trouble. And Hess, on the other hand, had once been a prosperous, successful farmer, until about two years prior, in 1926, when his farm was suddenly and unexpectedly plagued by a number of devastating setbacks. His crops mysteriously began to die, and his cows stopped producing milk. With his farm failing and financial trouble looming, Hess and his wife came to the decision that they, too, must be hexed. The commiseration of the three parties only served to solidify each of their convictions that something foul was afoot, that someone was out to get them. John again began to seek the aid of other powwowers, all of whom failed to identify the source of the supposed curse. Until, that is, John was referred to a woman by the name of Nellie Knoll in nearby Lancaster County. Nellie was an older woman, and often referred to as the River Witch of Marietta. She had previously been a highly regarded powwower, but in recent years, she ceased her services and no longer met with clients. That being said, when she heard the case of John Blymeyer, she was fascinated and took pity on the unfortunate man whom had been desperately fighting his hex for so many years. And so she offered to help. John made the short journey east from York County to the tiny riverside town of Marietta, where he met with the River Witch. As it turns out, Nellie Knoll did have some answers for John, and these answers would come with disastrous consequences. Typically, powwow teachings are passed down within families, from generation to generation. And given that a great many of their rituals are based on incantations, charms, and formulas, it became common practice to compile all of this information into books, gathering and presenting the collective knowledge of generations of family teachings. And over time, some of these books began to gain significant traction beyond their inclusive family circles eventually getting published and becoming widespread resources to powwowers over wide ranges. And one such book was a work titled The Long Lost Friend, 
written by a man in nearby Berks County, Pennsylvania, by the name of John George Homan. Now, The Long Lost Friend was an interesting thing. It did contain the standard collection of prayers, incantations, charms, remedies, folk medicine, and various other magical delights. It contained a huge range of things, like recipes for beer and molasses, spells to catch fish, cures for toothache, and a remedy for embarrassment by way of burning an egg. The Long Lost Friend had it all, but it was much more than just a book full of folk remedies. It was a sort of talisman. On the inside front cover of every copy, it had an inscription that read, Whoever carries this book with him is safe from all enemies, visible and invisible, and whoever has this book with him cannot die without the holy corpse of Jesus Christ, nor drown in any water, nor burn up in any fire. Not can any unjust sentence be passed upon him, so help me. And many people believed that, merely by having this book in their possession, they would be protected from harm. Upon meeting John Blymeyer, Nellie Knoll immediately confirmed that he was, in fact, suffering from a hex. And, just as Andrew Linhart had claimed before her, Nellie stated that John's antagonist was someone who he knew, maybe even someone close to him. Perplexed and unable to fathom who he knew that would possibly have afflicted him with such a curse, John asked who it was. And the old woman responded in a rather strange way. As the story goes, she asked him to hold out his hand, with his palms facing up. Then, the river witch of Marietta silently placed a dollar bill in his hand. She let it rest in his palm for a moment, and then she removed it, gesturing for John to take a look at his hand. And when he did, he was astonished by what he saw. In the center of his hand, an image materialized. A face belonging to someone that he had known since he was a small child, an old family friend by the name of Nelson Raymeyer. Nelson was an experienced powwower and had actually treated John for hexes on a number of occasions in his younger days. John struggled to fathom what possible reason Nelson could have for placing such a curse upon him. But in his mind, the image upon his hand was unmistakable and proved that Nelson Raymeyer was the cause of his troubles. And, oddly enough, Nellie Knoll also asserted that Nelson Raymeyer was the source of the hexes that had befallen his friends, John Curry and Milton Hess, back at the factory. Finally, she told John what he needed to do in order to break the curse. She stated that he needed to take Nelson Raymeyer's copy of The Long Lost Friend and a lock of his hair and bury both items six feet underground. Only then could they be free of their hex. Naturally, John Blymeyer immediately relayed this information to his friends, and about three months later, on November 26th, 1928, Blymeyer and Curry decided to act and to go to the home of Nelson Raymeyer in order to gather the materials required to break the hex. So, John Blymeyer, John Curry, and Milton Hess's oldest son, Clayton, all gathered together and drove to Raymeyer's Hollow. Nelson Raymeyer lived alone, in a dark wooden house perched on the side of a hill backing up to a thick forest. The land had a strange air about it, 
It was late in the day, and the dense trees looming in the distance cast shadows over the home as the three men nervously made their way to their antagonist's front door. John knocked. The three men could hear the floorboards creak as their nemesis made his way across the home to open the door. There really was no concrete plan in place here, and when Nelson Raymeyer opened the door and emerged from his home, the three men standing on his porch simply stood there in stunned silence for a moment. This was the climax of their story. Finally, after so many years of suffering from the curse that they believed had been cast upon them, they finally managed to find themselves face to face with the source. Nelson Raymeyer. He was an extremely tall man, towering over the three standing in front of him. He was well-built, with short, graying hair, and a demeanor that John found rather intimidating. After gathering himself, John finally mustered a couple of words, and he simply asked if they could speak with him for a few minutes, a request that Nelson granted, gesturing for the three men to enter the home. The group of men gathered in the sitting room, and John began to ease into the conversation, asking Raymeyer questions about the long-lost friend and powwowing in general. Slowly, Raymeyer lowered his guard, and the room grew more relaxed. However, John never mentioned the true reason that the men had paid a visit, and Nelson never divulged the location of his coveted book of spells. The two parties were at something of a stalemate, by this point, it was getting to be quite late in the evening, so Raymeyer offered the men shelter for the night, an offer that they accepted. Eventually, Raymeyer retired to his bedroom upstairs for the evening, leaving the three infiltrators with free reign of the downstairs of his home. Quietly, they began to rummage around the living room, checking bookshelves and drawers, searching for the long-lost friend. But it was nowhere to be found. After several hours of fruitlessly searching for the book, they finally consigned themselves to the fact that they were simply not going to find it. And instead, they shifted their attention to the second item that they needed to acquire in order to break the curse. A lock of Nelson Raymeyer's hair. After some muted but intense debate, they decided that Nelson was too big for them to overpower in order to cut his hair. And so the mission was deemed a failure. Finally, the three men went to sleep, and in the morning, they went home. But the story does not end there. John Blymeyer and John Curry took the day to regroup and come up with a new plan. They determined that this time around, they would need to take a more aggressive approach. They would need to overpower Nelson Raymeyer in order to obtain the necessary lock of hair and to force him to divulge the location of his copy of The Long Lost Friend. Knowing that this would be no easy task, the two again enlisted the help of one of Milton's sons, this time calling on 18-year-old Wilbert Hess. Then, that very evening, November 27, 1928, John Blymeyer and John Curry returned to the home of Nelson Raymeyer for the second consecutive night. Once again, they walked up to his front door in the ominous light of the dying day. Once again, Blymeyer knocked on the door, and once again, Nelson Raymeyer answered and invited the men inside. But this time, the encounter was not quite so civil. The men immediately demanded that he divulge the location of his copy of The Long Lost Friend. 
But Raymeyer was not one to give in to the demands of uninvited guests. He refused them. But before he truly had the opportunity to voice his displeasure with the situation, his opposition made their move. The three men rushed Raymeyer all at once, knocking him to the ground and pinning him there. The 200-pound man struggled as his attackers began to tie up his legs with a rope while still pinning him down. A flurry of blows were exchanged between the two parties as Raymeyer battled back in a vain attempt to free himself from his attackers, who were harnessing every ounce of strength that they had in order to keep the man pinned. But they did eventually manage to tie him up. And this is where the story gets a little bit cloudy. According to Blymeyer, at this point, Raymeyer stopped struggling. For a moment, the room was silent, and Raymeyer promised to retrieve the long-lost friend if he was allowed to get up. And again, according to Blymeyer's version of the story, the three men did allow Raymeyer to get back up so that he could show them the location of the book. But no sooner had he gotten to his feet than he suddenly lunged towards the three intruders, swinging his fists in a reckless attempt to ward them off. But with his legs still tied together, it wasn't really a fair fight. The three men quickly overpowered him, viciously beating the unfortunate man. Eventually, the rope made its way to his neck, and the men began to strangle him. As the scuffle continued, Raymeyer's desperate struggles grew weaker and weaker, and then stopped. He was dead. At this point, the three men figured that, with Raymeyer dead, the hex surely must have been lifted. So they left, leaving behind the requisite lock of hair and Raymeyer's copy of the long-lost friend. Two days later, a neighbor discovered Nelson Raymeyer's body, and before long, the police put together the story behind his tragic demise, that he had been murdered as a result of three men's fear and superstition that he had placed a hex upon them. Soon, the case became known as the Hex Murder, and given its eccentricity, the press had a field day with it. It was widely covered in York County and beyond, fascinating readers with its tale of outlandish folk magic that many people did not even know still existed in modern society. As a result, powwow folk magic began to lose its reputation as a quaint, harmless cultural oddity of the Pennsylvania Dutch. And instead, people began to regard it with fear, having seen its potential. Soon, the authorities in many parts of Pennsylvania began to crack down on the dangerous superstition, and any death in the region that was even vaguely related to powwow magic began to be referred to as a hex murder. Only a few months later, in March of 1929, the body of 21-year-old Verna Delp was discovered in a forest near Allentown, Pennsylvania. Investigators discovered three pieces of paper in her possession, with charms written on them that were supposedly intended to protect her from theft. And the coroner discovered three different types of poison in her body as well. But her story is a complicated one. 
Verno was pregnant, and the father was no longer in the picture. So some people claimed that her death was most likely a botched abortion attempt. However, she had been seeing a local powwower who was treating her for eczema, and investigators were convinced that this was yet another case of hex murder. While the charges against the powwower were ultimately dropped, the murder of Verna Delp remains unsolved. In January of 1930, a new story began making its rounds. A story of the death of a woman from Reading, Pennsylvania, who was given a magical lotion of some sort from a local hex doctor. As it turns out, this lotion was extremely flammable. And one evening, she ventured too close to her coal stove, which caused her to burst into flames. She died from her wounds that next morning, and authorities had what they believed to be yet another death with witchcraft to blame. Then, in March of 1934, there was the case of Albert Shinsky and Susan Mummy, where Albert believed that Susan had placed a curse upon him, and he ultimately murdered her by shooting her through a window with a shotgun. And with this murder, powwowing and Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic completed its shift in the court of public opinion. It was now decidedly dangerous. Schools began to wage war on belief in folk healing, and the authorities began to crack down on practitioners of magic. While they ultimately found it impossible to quash the practices completely, they certainly pushed them out of the spotlight and into the shadows, largely away from the public's eye. Regarding the death of Nelson Raymeyer, eventually Wilbert Hess was charged with murder in the second degree and served 10 years in prison. John Blymeyer and John Curry were both charged with first-degree murder, and Blymeyer insisted throughout the trial that he believed that he had done the right thing, that he felt far better since the death and burial of Nelson Raymeyer. Both men were sentenced to life in prison, but eventually were released on parole and lived out otherwise normal and uneventful lives. Following the murder of Nelson Raymeyer, John Blymeyer, John Curry, and Wilbert Hess did carry out one final act before leaving their victim's home. In an attempt to hide the evidence and cover their tracks, they tried to burn the house down. The three men doused the lifeless body of Nelson Raymeyer in kerosene, and they lit it on fire. Immediately, his body erupted into intense flames, which quickly began to spread throughout the mostly wooden home. Seeing this, the three men left, assuming that the flames would soon complete their work, and all evidence of their crime would be erased. However, this was not to be the case. Nelson Raymeyer, it would seem, had one final trick up his sleeve. Somehow, the roaring flames were extinguished, the house suffered only minor damage, and his body remained, along with evidence of the tragic and needless murder that had just conspired. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, I've got my usual stuff to plug. If you feel so inclined, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
Sometimes I post stuff there. Sometimes I don't. I could be better about that. I don't think that I've asked for Apple Podcasts reviews in a while. So I'm going to go ahead and do that too. Last I checked, we were at 95 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is all right. But I think it'd be pretty cool to get to 100. So if anyone out there who hasn't already left a review would consider doing that and help the show get to 100, that would be hugely appreciated. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. There's a lot that goes into the making of this show, and there's no big team behind the scenes making it all happen. It's just little old me sitting behind the keyboard. So the support on Patreon is instrumental in helping me keep things going, and really everything that I make on there gets put back into the show anyway. So you truly are supporting Simply Strange. So anyway, you can get more information about that at patreon.com slash simply strange. I will put that link in the episode description as well. And thank you to all the current supporters also. You guys are amazing. And that's it. That's my spiel. Thanks for listening, everyone. Simply Strange will be back in two weeks. There's no featured podcast this week, so... Not really sure how to end this. I guess I'll just stop talking. <laughs>